So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And may the Lord truly bless this reading of his word this morning and bring it alive for us. So let's ask him to do that. Our dear Lord, as we, on this Christmas day, as we celebrate your son, we celebrate the greatest gift that humanity has ever had on a day that we give each other gifts and we talk about gifts quite a bit. We are thankful for the gift that we are going to talk about this morning because it's not just your son. It's not just his person. It's not just the existence. It's what he did. It's what he came to accomplish, which is to crush our guilt with his grace. And we give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we make our way through Luke's gospel, um, what we will see is that the themes that he has sort of ebb and flow a little bit. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's so many themes winding their way through this gospel. And and every now and then it'll pop up and you'll see this theme uh, put, put forward and then it'll kind of disappear into the background again and then it'll pop up again. And that's that's the way that uh, it, it is this morning, and that's the way that it has been with the idea of the gift that God gives us and the whole process of gift giving. So I think on Christmas morning, uh, it is more than appropriate to talk about the greatest gift of Christmas, which you all know, or you should know, if you don't know, is Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God who came to set us free. That, that's our great gift. But before we get into that, I, I want to just give you a little illustration of what I'm not talking about, about what the gift of Christmas isn't. And and the reason I do this is because it's really the mindset of most of the world, or at least most of our country, that if we're going to have any gifts as far as a spiritual sense on Christmas, we're giving God a gift just by showing up or just by thinking about him. And that's not really the case. So I actually want to give you an illustration, and I hate to do this because this is one of our favorite movies. Kane, I love this movie. We watch it every Christmas. But it's a bastion of sappy liberal theology. I mean, it's just the theology of the movie is terrible. Uh, but it's it's a great movie. You may know it. It's uh, from 1947, black and white movie called The Bishop's Wife. And it has uh, Cary Grant and David Niven and Loretta Young in it. And uh, the plot is real simple. Um, Cary Grant plays an angel in a totally ridiculous view of an angel. He comes and works all kinds of circus tricks to impress uh, David Niven, who's the bishop probably of an Anglican church, and, and tries to make him appreciate his family by stealing his wife. I mean, it just really didn't make a lot of sense. But the reason I'm bringing this up is the final scene is what really gets me. Because when an angel comes and visits them uh, and teaches them the right things about life, he disappears and everybody 
everybody forgets that he was there and doesn't know that they've been visited by an angel. So when David Niven, the bishop, rises to preach his, his Christmas Eve sermon, it actually is a sermon written by the angel, but he doesn't know it. But I wanted to read that sermon to you just so you can see the opposite of what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, it goes like this, and it's, it's short. You'd like my sermons to be like this, but uh, it, it, this is it. It's in a nutshell. Uh, he says, tonight I want to tell you a story of an empty stocking. Once upon a midnight clear, there was a child's cry. A blazing star hung over a stable, and wise men came with birthday gifts. We haven't forgotten that night down the centuries. We celebrate it with stars on Christmas trees, with the sound of bells, and with gifts, but especially with gifts. You give me a book, I give you a tie. Aunt Martha has always wanted an orange squeezer, and Uncle Henry can do with a new pipe. For we forget nobody, adult or child, all the stockings are filled, all that is, except for one. And we have even forgotten to hang it up. The stocking for the child born in a manger, it's his birthday we're celebrating. Don't let us ever forget that. Let us ask ourselves what he would wish for most, and then let each put in his share. Loving kindness, warm hearts, and a stretched out hand of tolerance. All the shining gifts that make peace on earth. Now, again, I realize that the theology is upside down. Because Christmas is not about a gift that we give God. It's about a gift that he gives us. It's about the gift of Jesus. But when we look at the nativity story that we've read so many times during this Christmas season, we don't see anything about us giving Jesus a gift just by remembering him for a few weeks out of December and beginning to treat him each other like we should with some kind of a sappy sentimental idea of what a Christmas spirit is. That's not what Christmas is about at all. all. In fact, here's what the angels had to say about Christmas. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The gift is 100% from God to us. There's no mention of, of, of extending the hands of, of, of tolerance or putting in our share. That, that is the completely backward view that is so often seen of Christmas. In fact, the Christmas gift that we get was not wrapped in paper. It was wrapped in a swaddling cloth. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. For it was on that night that Jesus was born that the veil of darkness that clouds our vision of God was completely ripped apart. The Shekinah glory of God would shine all around and heaven just overflowed with exuberance. The angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Not the kind of peace that we give, all of the shining things that make for peace, but shalom, true peace with God. So this morning, I want to talk about the greatest gift 
of Christmas. And I know that you're going to look at the story that we're reading and you're going to say, where on earth does he get that? Well, uh, hopefully I can make it clear because you see what Herod is suffering from, and we'll bring this out, what Herod is suffering from is guilt. And guilt is something that all of us deal with, both in an objective sense and a subjective sense. So I hope to make that clear. Now, once again, as I said in the beginning, Luke is a gospel that ebbs and flows and, and brings these ideas up. And one of the things that Luke has been teaching us is that Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that humanity has ever been given. Same thing I just read. The angels say, unto you has been given on this night a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who is King and who is Messiah and who is the Deliverer sent to set us free. But then if you go through the Nativity story, it's all about what kind of gift he is. If you remember, Elizabeth had a very short song and she talked about the gift of joy as her own child leapt for joy. Mary comes right behind that with her song, the Magnificat. And she talks about God's gift of mercy to those who are oppressed. And then Zechariah sings a song. And he talks, well, doesn't sing a song, says a song. And he talks about the gift of covenant fulfillment that Jesus is. And the day spring that has, has shown on high. And then old Simeon in the temple talks about the great gift that God has given him, allowing him to see the Messiah before he dies. And then Anna, the, the ancient uh, uh, woman who was there, she talks about the great gift of all those who are waiting for the redemption of of Israel, and that's who Jesus is as she sees the little baby come in for his dedication. So Jesus has always been the gift, and, and, and the scripture makes that absolutely clear. But not only was Jesus the gift, he's also a gift giver because he spent his entire life giving, giving gifts. I mean, after all, he gave the gift of health to Peter's mother-in-law and to many others who he healed. He gave the gift of purity to the leper who needed to be cleansed of that great disease. He gave the gift of sanity to the demoniac who was possessed by so many demons. He gave the gift of dexterity to the paraplegic because he couldn't use his arms or his legs. He gave the gift of life to the mother of the corpse of name by giving her his her son back. I mean, so over and over again in virtually his entire life, what Jesus did was give us gifts. He gave us the gift of the ethics of the kingdom. He gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He gave us over and over again the great gifts. But the greatest gift that he gave us was himself. The greatest gift that Jesus gave us was what he did on the cross. Because it was on the cross that he gave the particular gift that I want to talk about this morning. And that is the gift of crushing our guilt with grace. And that is how we're going to bring this out. Now, in turning our text again... What you may notice is that this is just a little interlude in Luke, and he's going to talk about John the Baptist. Now, Luke is, is interesting as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, because in some senses, 
he will talk in great detail about something that the other synoptic gospels don't talk about. For instance, he gives us such details about the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah, the father, Elizabeth, the, the whole kind of, uh, uh, I mean, almost I have a chapter there in the first chapter telling us about John the Baptist. Then at the time of the baptism of Jesus, well, he's sort of with the rest of the synoptics. But here... When it comes to the story of how John the Baptist was killed by Herod Antipas, and we'll get to that in a moment, he's completely silent. He doesn't give us any details. And I believe there's a reason for that. If you were to look at the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, when they give this particular little paragraph, they use it as a way to launch into the story of how John the Baptist was killed and the whole grisly um, details of it. And really what they're doing is emphasizing the perils of radical discipleship because that's exactly what happens to John the Baptist. But we'll notice that Luke doesn't go that route. He does doesn't take us there. In fact, it's almost like it's assumed, and he doesn't take our focus off of Jesus. And, and I think that's where the key is. We're going to talk about Herod's guilt, but we're also going to talk about Jesus as the great gift who alleviates that guilt. And I believe, I can't tell you for sure that this is what Luke's purpose was, but I, I believe that it is. So with that said, let's jump into the text. And not a lot of it, it's very short, but then we're going to step back and we're going to talk about guilt and, and something that each and every one of us has to deal with in one way or another. So look there in the seventh verse. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Now, it's not Herod the Great, as I said earlier. This is Herod Antipas, one of his sons. And a Tetrarch is simply a word that means the ruler of a fourth part. And when Herod the Great died, they divided the kingdom that he had put together into four parts. And uh, one of those parts was Herod Antipas. And his part of it was Galilee and across the Jordan all the way down south on that eastern side of the Jordan to where Judea is uh, on on the western side. And so since John the Baptist is baptizing in Perea, which is what that area is called, and Jesus is operating at this time in Galilee, both of them are literally in Herod's backyard. So he, he has a high interest of both of these men. Now, I think the best way to describe a man like Herod Antipas is that he was a petty potentate. Uh, he wasn't a king like uh, like Herod the Great. He was more of just an appointed ruler. The only reason that he was in power was because he was easily manipulated by the Romans and would collect their taxes for them. And so they held him in power, but he didn't have, he was very cunning and capable as far as staying in power, but he wasn't really a great man in and of himself. In fact, I kind of like the way that um, Alexander McLaren speaks of him. 
He talks of him this way. He says he was evidently a sensual, luxurious, feeble-willed, easily frightened, superstitious, and cunning despot. He was basically the epitome of a bumbling buffoon who was easily manipulated, obviously, by his wife Herodias. That's why he ended up killing John the Baptist, because he was, he was uh, manipulated into it by her and by her daughter. So he, he's a little fish in a big pond but thinks that he's a big fish. He he thought that he was a big man. He was licentious. He was a partier. And and he, he had the same treacherous heart as did his father, but without any of the ability or, or the, the the real cunning that um, Alexander, I mean, not Alexander the Great, but Herod the Great had. So um, this was the nature of the man, and it is his weakness that allowed for the murder of John the Baptist. Now, we're going to see that that's a, that's a major part of Herod Antipas's life because it is that murder, it is that killing of an innocent and righteous man that creates the guilt in him, both objective and subjective. We'll talk about that as we go along. But anyway... He hears about all that was happening, and that means what's happening with Jesus. Now, we're not sure how he heard about Jesus. It's kind of amazing that if this is the first time that he heard about Jesus, that it would be the first time. But people like Herod tended to live in bubbles. They, they, they really didn't associate with the people very much. But maybe he heard about Jesus through Chuzza, his steward. Remember that? Back in the 8th chapter, we, we learned that Chuzza's wife was following Jesus and, and supplying out of her means uh, uh, some of the expenses for the ministry. We don't know if Chuzza also was a believer and a follower. Probably not. But he was the steward of Herod Antipas in charge of all uh, of, of his affairs and his property. So more than likely, he heard about Jesus through him. But I think, I think it would be amazing that he would not hear about Jesus through John the Baptist. Because after all, John the Baptist was closely associated with Jesus. So one would think that it would be so. Now, in, in both Matthew and, and, and Mar, Matthew, <laughs> Matthew and Mark, uh, both of those, we, we learned that, that, um, uh, th- there was an, an interest that Herod had in John the Baptist. And, and he would actually, in Mark, go and listen to John the Baptist and listen to him gladly. Uh, uh, and, and so one would think that he would have heard about Jesus through that. But it, it appears that now he is perplexed about who Jesus is. Now, that word perplexed, it's, it's a little stronger than our, we would think now. We would think that he just was puzzled, sort of scratching his head about who is this Jesus. Well, it, it's a little more intense than that. It, it means at his wit's end, at, 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 at the end of his rope, if you will, that he could not figure it out. And it brings in a little bit of the panic, of, of the fear that that is inherit. Now Luke again does not specify this. In fact, he keeps our attention on Jesus. But both Matthew and Mark tell us that it was Herod who was scared to death that John the Baptist had risen from the grave and come back to haunt him. 
And that's a fear that is brought about by his great underlying guilt. In fact, Matthew 14, it goes this way. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work at him. Well, that is borderline insanity to to think that, and and I'll explain why I would say that later on. But he's been driven by an intensity of the guilt that underlines all, all of this. And so there, people are talking about who Jesus is, and apparently there's a buzz in in the various palaces of, of Herod Antipas. And it went something like this, uh, starting in the middle of the seventh verse. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, we'll get to that in a moment, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had, had risen. And, and apparently this isn't peculiar to just the palaces of Herod. Because it apparently is public opinion. This is what people are talking about all over. In fact, in just a few verses, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Famously in Matthew 16, the same uh, uh, conversation, the disciples respond to him. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people say you're Elijah. And some people say that you're one of the prophets. Now, I find this interesting because notice how the people tended to go for the fantastic. Uh, Somebody's been raised from the dead. When Jesus is clearly telling them the kingdom of heaven is upon you, I have come to declare that your sins will, 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 will condemn you, but I have come because I'm the son of God to release you from those sins. But they would rather have a demon in their midst, at least on the other side, than they would have the son of God in their midst. So they ask him to leave and they would rather believe in the fantastic then they would believe that Jesus, the Son of God, was in their midst and had come to save them. But anyway, that was the way that they were thinking. So I I really can't tell you who the prophets were that they were talking about. I I don't know of any Old Testament prophets that were expected to rise from the dead. But Elijah makes sense because everybody was expecting Elijah to come. Remember, Elijah was just taken. And, and, and Malachi tells us that before the great and powerful day of the Lord, you, my servant Elijah will be there. And so everybody was waiting for Elijah. In fact, um, even modern day faithful Jews will sometimes leave a chair empty at their Passover Seder tables for Elijah, because they're expecting Elijah to come back. But we know better, don't we? Because Jesus told us that John the Baptist himself was Elijah, and that he'd already come, and that he is the one that Malachi was actually talking about. So um, we, we, we don't know why uh, uh, the, the prophets are mentioned, but it's that first one I think that we need to key on, the fact that Actually, Herod believed in an unreasonable fear that John the Baptist had risen from the grave. And the reason for that fear, as I mentioned before, and the reason for his unreasonable, very illogical way of looking at it was because of his guilt. His guilt was about to drive him mad. 
Now, when we talk about guilt, I'm just going to introduce it now. We'll come back to it later. But when we talk about guilt, we have both an objective thing and a subjective thing. The objective thing is an actual forensic legal guilt. When you go to court and you're declared guilty, that is a state of being. You are guilty. But then there's the subjective guilt. The subjective guilt is a feeling of guilt, a haunting feeling. And I believe that that is what uh, uh, Herod now is suffering from, is that feeling of guilt that is driving him to make illogical decisions because he says, I, I beheaded John the Baptist, so who's this? Well, he, he actually knows in his heart that he had killed an innocent man and is that guilt that is coming back and, and making things very difficult for him. But the last statement that he says there, and he sought to see him, he sought to see Jesus. Now, that's the right, that's the right thing to seek for, but he's seeking Jesus for all the wrong reasons. He's not seeking him as that demoniac would to sit at his feet and to learn from him and, and, and to follow him and to obey him. No, he, he's looking because he, he wants to talk some more. He was intrigued by John the Baptist, but he, he wasn't intrigued enough to listen to what John the Baptist taught because John the Baptist thought, hey, the axe is at the root of the tree. Repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of heaven is upon you. And so he, he wasn't interested in Jesus. And that was really made clear when he actually did get the opportunity to meet Jesus. You know, it was right at the end of Jesus' life. Remember, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. And Herod didn't take the opportunity to allow Jesus to ask him to share the good news of the gospel with him, to share who he was. No, he wanted to see circus tricks. He wanted to see him do a miracle. And when Jesus wouldn't do a miracle, he mocked him and made fun of him and dressed him up in one of his robes and sent him back to Pilate in order to be crucified. So that really kind of reveals the man is, is that, you know, when the answer to what is driving you virtually insane, which is your guilt, when your answer to that guilt is in front of you, you can't see it. You let it slip through your fingers. And this is one of the reasons I think that Luke has put this right where he has and in the way that he has. Because those of you who have been here for our study of Luke, you know that we just think we can't get away from that parable of the, of the, of the sower and the soils. Because Herod represents those three soils. He is representative of all those soils in, in one way or another. The soils that will not receive the gospel. Notice that Jesus, when he does have an opportunity to address Herod Antipas, doesn't say a word. He keeps his mouth shut. He does not try to save him in any way. Just like he did in the people of Nazareth and just like he did in the townspeople on the other side of the lake. He stayed silent because Herod was one of those soils where the gospel simply could not take root. 
It was the hard path. You see, when you continue to play with the gospel or play with Christ or play with the good news that is given you and you continually reject it, you get harder and harder and harder until it just sits on the surface and the birds come and take it away, representing the demonic forces. Herod was also a shallow man. And even though he seemed to show an interest in the gospel, well, there wasn't enough soil there to support it. And it would spring up maybe a little bit, but then the sun would burn it up immediately. But he was a licentious man. He was a a, a, a sensual man. He was a drunken man. He was so wrapped up in the ways of this world that those things just choked any opportunity that he had to understand it. Can you imagine being face to face with both John the Baptist and Jesus and walking away from it not having any understanding? The reason is because he is the man. I don't think Jesus was talking about Herod particularly, but he is representative of the man that Jesus talked about in the midst of that parable of the sower when he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to them I speak in parables, so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. And Herod Antipas was that man that even though Jesus is standing in front of him and and, and he's interested in him, he's totally oblivious to who Jesus actually was. So what I want to do, and I realize that that's kind of rushing through the text. What I really want to do is I want to step back and I want to analyze why Herod had this overwhelming fear And what that fear led to, it led to his his subjective fear of guilt. Now, let's talk about guilt in the two different ways that I told you about. Guilt is both objective and it is subjective. And brothers and sisters, by the way, just to kind of keep this in this perspective, every single one in this room suffers from guilt. As I said before, guilt in its objective sense is something that each and every one of us has to deal with. And so therefore, we're, we're going to get back around to the great gift of Christmas because the great gift of, gift of Christmas is the alleviation of our guilt. But Herod had both the objective guilt and the subjective guilt. The objective guilt is when you're guilty, when you do something that determines that you're guilty. Now, he would never go before a court because he was a petty dictator. So no one was there to declare him guilty. But there's no one who reads the story of how he killed an innocent man, a righteous man, a godly man that doesn't come away and say, that's a rotten thing to do. That's a wrong thing to do. Even if you're a secularist, it's a wrong thing to do. But certainly in God's economy, under God's law, that was an absolute guilty statement. So he's declared guilty. And what I want you to see about guilt is that it's objective. It's tangible. It's real. It's a state of being. It's a fact. And so when you are guilty of something, you are, it's it's not something that can be taken away or destroyed. It is a statement that either has to be paid for in some way or usually pushed aside to where you don't see it anymore. You try to push it aside, but you can't. You can't get rid of guilt. It follows you. Now, the other side of guilt is 
subjective guilt. It's the feeling of guilt. It's, it's the haunting of that guilt. Because even though you, you've, you've pushed aside the objective guilt or diminished it or try to explain it away, it's still when the demons come out at night, when, when, when you're weak, that, that subjective guilt begins to haunt you. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a, a, a great story called The Telltale Heart. You, you know that one where he murdered a guy and, and, and hid him under the floorboards. And every night he could hear the pounding of the heart because of his guilt was just driving him to distraction. And so we see that Herod is completely uh, uh, destroyed by this agony of, of guilt. Um, and And... You know, I, I think the guilt, at least the subjective side of guilt, is kind of like, um, let me put it a different way. Uh, it's, it's like a, having a headache. You know, we all have headaches, and sometimes headaches don't really, uh, aren't the result of anything serious, but sometimes a headache is a masking or the result of a very serious physical problem. Now, usually what we want to do is we want to get rid of the headache. We want to get rid of the pain. And we don't want to think about what might be causing the headache. So we push the reality of that aside. We kind of water it down. We sort of rationalize our way out of it. And then we take aspirin so the headache is gone. And that's pretty much what happens with guilt. When the subjective guilt, when the feeling of guilt begins to haunt us, we want to find something to make the guilt go away without ever concentrating on the objective aspect of the guilt that has to be dealt with in some way or the guilt is going to continue to come back. And that, I believe, is what is haunting Herod. In, in, in fact, the guilt that he experienced in an objective sense is just as real as that demon-possessed man. This is another reason I think Luke has brought these together. That demoniac had a condition. The woman with the flow of blood had a condition. Jairus's daughter had a condition. One was uh, demon-possessed, one was physical, and one was she was dead. And so the, the guilt, the objective guilt that Herod has is just as real, just as tangible, just as much of a fact as any of those. In fact, I, I think, and again, I don't know that this was Luke's intention, but I think that there's a correlation between Herod and the demoniac that was on the other side. And the demoniac has nothing. From the outside, they are so different, you can't even compare the two. The demoniac has absolutely nothing. Herod has everything. The demoniac lives in a, in a graveyard amongst moldering bones. Herod lives in the finest palaces in the land. The demoniac is naked and has nothing to wear, and Herod dresses himself in the finest clothes. The demoniac is totally alone, crying out in the darkness, and Herod is always surrounded by his good-time buddies. But in a sense, they're exactly the same, because Herod is possessed, ever much as possessed by his guilt, as is the demoniac possessed by the demons. And Herod's guilt drives him just as insane as the demons drove that demoniac insane. Let me give you an example. How on earth could anyone using their logical mind think that Jesus was John the Baptist reborn or back from the dead? When Jesus and John the Baptist are contemporaries, 
the whole time that John the Baptist is alive in the cell talking to Herod, Jesus is in Galilee doing the mighty miracles. And so how is it possible? They're only six months apart in age, for goodness sakes. How is it possible that Jesus would be John the Baptist raised from the dead if they're contemporaries? Well, that just shows you the degree to which guilt can drive someone virtually into insanity, which is exactly where it had driven um, Herod. So let me sum all of this up real quickly, and then I'll put it in a Christian context. Why does Luke have this story here? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I can't tell you this is what Luke is. But I think that this is once again keeping our focus on Jesus and what he has power and authority over. He has power and authority over the elements of creation when he calmed the winds and the waves. He has power and authority over the forces of evil when he cast out the demons of the demoniac. He has power and authority over all infirmities as he stopped the flow of blood in the woman. He has power and authority over life and death itself because he brings Jairus' daughter back from the grave. But now we see he has power and authority over guilt and enter precisely at this point the greatest gift of Christmas. Because every single one of us suffers from the same kind of guilt. And either we are going to bury it or diminish it or it has to be pardoned. There's no other way that objective guilt can be dealt with. In fact, from a Christian context, we live in a country, as most countries are, governed by laws. Especially in a democracy or republic that we live in. And the Constitution was a set of laws, and there are many laws that that govern the way that we live. And when you break one of those laws, you are declared, and it can be proven that you broke a law and you go to court, a judge declares you as guilty. And when you are declared as guilty, you move into a state that cannot be removed from you because it is objective. It is an objective guilt. Well, as Christians, we know we live under a much broader law, a, a, a universal law, a cosmic law, the law of God, the ethical standards that God has placed before us, the commands of God. And he has, he has put these in place. And when we break one of his laws, no matter how we break it, we are declared by our great judge as guilty. And once you are guilty, my dear friend, there is nothing that you can do to alleviate that guilt. It remains. It's a state. It's objective. It's tangible. It becomes a very fact. Now, when you break the laws of the state, usually there are punishments that go along with the breaking of that law. And it can range depending on what the law is or depending on what the transgression is or who it was against. That can either be a, 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 a parking fine, or it can be incarceration, or it can be a death penalty. It all depends on the nature of the transgression. But when you transgress against a perfect and a holy God, it only takes one transgression. It only takes one, one breaking of those laws, and you're declared guilty. And along with that Guilt comes the only punishment, which is death. The wages of sin is death. 
And we're talking spiritual death now. And so therefore, a, 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 a transgression against an eternal being is also an eternal transgression. And so fact of the matter is, is ever since you have been born, ever since you started walking, you have been piling up guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon guilt. This is a crushing guilt, brothers and sisters. This is a debilitating guilt. And what makes it worse is that it's an inescapable guilt. There's nothing that you can do to alleviate that guilt. You cannot take it away because you did the transgression and the judgment has been made and you are guilty before a holy God. You can push it away. You can do whatever you can. You can you can try to belittle it. You can try to diminish it. You can try to act like it actually is not a transgression by saying that we redefine our laws. We don't accept his laws. We redefine it. But that doesn't remove your guilt one iota. Once again, enter the gift of Christmas. Because that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to eliminate your guilt. He came to destroy it. He came to annihilate it, to crush the guilt with grace. You see, there's only two things you can do. You either have to diminish it and make it go away and dream it away, or else it has to be pardoned. And it is through the grace of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of Christmas, that your guilt is indeed pardoned. And so therefore, don't be like, Herod, who didn't ever understand, never grasped what Jesus was uh, capable of doing, that the one thing that is destroying him, which is his guilt, Jesus came to, to take away. Don't be that way. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Beg him for his mercy because he is rich in mercy and willing to forgive you of your sins. And that is the great gift of Christmas, that Jesus is the one who takes away our guilt. And, and, and by the way, just, just as sort of an aside, this is the idiocy. I'm sorry. The absolute idiocy of the liberal theologian attempt to belittle our guilt. To say that we can take it away by doing good deeds. Because you know what you only thing you obliterate? You don't obliterate the guilt. You just obliterate grace. Because the greater the guilt, the greater the grace. And there's no limit to the grace that Jesus gives when, uh, when we're guilty. So don't, don't try to take away the guilt. Face it straight on. Just turn to Jesus because he's the one who eliminates the guilt. The other side of guilt, Christian-wise, is subjective guilt. And we as Christians have a strange phenomenon. And, and, and we all suffer from this. That we, we recognize what I just told you, that Jesus is the gift, that Jesus came to alleviate our, our guilt, to take away our sins. And we accept that, and, and, and then we go right ahead and carry our subjective guilt around with us till the day we die. And, 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 and for some reason, we think that's a good thing. For some reason, we think that even though I know that Jesus paid for that sin, I know that he died on the cross for my sin, that we somehow feel guilty for not feeling guilty. And so we carry that subjective guilt around with us as if we're being pious. 
In fact, I have to tell you, most of my Christian counseling, when I'm counseling a Christian, I usually don't have trouble getting them to face their sinfulness. What I have trouble is getting them to face the grace that they have been given that takes away that guilt. Let me explain something, brothers and sisters. That grace is just as tangible and objective and real as guilt. In other words, when you're in a state of guilt, you can't do anything about it. You cannot push it away. But when you're in a state of grace, you also, there's nothing that you can do to get rid of it. Now, the devil, your enemy, would love for you to carry the guilt of past transactions around transgressions around for the rest of your life. And and there is, there's a sequence that occurs that, that is one side of it's very right and the other side of it's very wrong. Okay? When, when you sin against God, when your conscience tells you, I have just hurt the one I love, I've just sinned against him, there's a mortification that occurs. That's natural. That should be. That's your conscience telling you that you've sinned against God and you're horrified at your sin and you hate that sin. But then what we are told to do as Christians is go, fall on our face, repent, confess it before God, and he is faithful to forgive them. Now, here's the problem. That's it. That's done. It's over. The sin is gone. Now, I'm not talking about antinomianism where you just sin all all you want. Because if that's the way you approach this, you're not under grace anyway. You've misunderstood what Jesus came to do. But if you're under grace, if he forgives you because of his cross work, because he went to the cross to pay for that, and it has already been paid and God's wrath has already come upon it, sometimes people have a difficulty in understanding that you're continuing to sin if you continue to carry around the baggage of past sins. That's the whole idea of the scapegoat. That's the whole idea of expiation is that Jesus took your sin away. It's it's kind of like if I gave you a gift, I'm not going to. But if I gave you a gift of a million dollars and wrapped it and put it on your Christmas tree, it's a million dollars sitting there. And let's say you choose not to open it. You just choose to leave it in its wrapper. It's not going to do you any good. You're not going to get any benefit from that. But it doesn't change the fact that I gave you a gift of a million dollars and it's sitting under your Christmas tree. So I think that what we have here is Luke telling us to take the gift out of that figurative Christmas tree and open it up and enjoy the peace that the Son of God has given you, the greatest gift of Christmas. Don't carry around the subjective guilt. Recognize that when Jesus came and he paid for that sin, it is done once and for all. And carried around is not pious. It is not righteous. It is sinful. To enjoy the freedom. That's what I think the angels meant when they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Well, that peace is peace with God, shalom with God. Not that we have earned. Not that because we give all the shining gifts that make peace. But that Jesus gave us that peace. So enjoy it. Enjoy it because there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is the greatest gift of Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're very thankful for your great gift to us on this Christmas day. We can think of no greater celebration than to celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ and the gift of the removal of our guilt, something we cannot remove ourselves.
but only you can. We thank you again for the grace that crushes guilt and takes it away forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.